Good morning and welcome to Rural Queensland today on Monday morning, the 18th of September. We are with Ben Dobbin and a very good morning to everybody listening to us through 4SB in Kingaroy, 4ZR in Roma, 4VL in Charleville, 4HI in Emerald, 4LM Mount Isa, 4LG Longreach, 4GC Charters Towers in the Hot Country Network. Good morning to you. Rural Queensland today with Ben Dobbin on Facebook page. You can go there, you can download us on Spotify and a very good morning to everybody listening to us this morning. So much to get through this morning. We're going to talk with David Littleproud very shortly. Congratulations to the Dolby uh, Rugby League Club. Uh, 20 points to 14 victors over Valleys in the grand final. Just awesome. Dolby winning the grand final in the Rugby League over Valleys, 20 points to 14 on Saturday night. A great victory. We will talk with Ben Iken, the QRL CEO, very shortly. Zena Ronfelt will join us and Tyson Golder. And much, much more. We'll catch up with Reed Rattle as well ahead of Brahman Week. So a big show for you. Let's get into it. David Littleproud joins us next. This is Rural Queensland Today. You're with Ben Dobbin. It's Monday morning, the 18th of September. Monday morning on Rural Queensland Today across the Resonate Broadcast Network. Uh, the leader of the National Party, David Littleproud, uh, joins us this morning on Rural Queensland Today. David, good morning. Firstly, uh, mate, if you're a Wallaby supporter, mate, beaten by Fiji last night, and I understand how important Fiji is in the Commonwealth, <laughs> but it couldn't get any worse for the Wallabies in the World Cup, beaten by Fiji <laughs> last night. I'm in mourning, no doubt you are, mate. Yeah, mate, look, uh, look, the Wallabies are the Wallabies at the moment. They're in a, a pretty low spot. I think, uh, unfortunately, rugby in the country take a bit of a pounding over the last 100%. probably decade, to be honest, and... You know, unfortunately, I think European rules have, have made the game a, a lot more technical rather than running. But uh, it is sad. Uh, we're hopefully the Wallabies can turn that around, and we've sort of beat Wales. Yeah, I think in our pool, so yeah, that's, uh, we've got a, that's we've the got challenge. a fair road to hoe at the moment. But yeah. uh, anyway, that's uh, that's Australian rugby. Yeah, and look, with the Lions in a prelim on Saturday and the Broncos in a prelim on Saturday, and then you see the Wallabies at a World Cup getting dusted, and, and you know, it, rugby has really fallen, and, and you're right, over the last 10 years. Can we just talk about the biggest burning issue? Um, and that is the referendum. I, I am at a point now where I'm getting more angry and more angry because of not only the money that's being spent to campaign to try and force the point of view of the yes vote. But now we've got marches across the country. We've got celebrities who feel it's their social justice just to say yes without knowing the full facts. But yet if we talk to the Indigenous leaders, if we talk to different areas of the Indigenous population, they actually don't want this. Now, the devil's in the detail, David. Recognition is not something that we are all against. In fact, it's completely what everybody would like to see recognition in the Constitution. But the way they've gone about this and handled this, the Labor government, and it is the Labor government, it's Anthony Albanese and the Labor government that have done this, is nothing short of appalling. The divide that it is creating in everyday Australian friendships, families, workplace, has never been greater, and it should never have happened. No, mate, look, uh, we've told Albanese on a number of occasions, don't go down the path of a voice. If it was about recognition, we could all get on with it and we could all help. Uh, but he ignored that. For a couple, there was only 250 Indigenous uh, people that went to Uluru, and apparently they're the ones that determine the intent, determine the change to our constitution. Normally what happens when you change a constitution, you have a constitutional convention where every Australian, because this convention, because the Constitution belongs to all of us, gets to have a say. But apparently it's only 250 Indigenous Australians who went to Uluru get to have a say about the change and the intent of our, of our Constitution, which isn't, isn't a democratic way of doing that. Uh, but he, he conflated it with this voice, which isn't, a new, which isn't a new concept. We've had a representative body before. It was called ATSIC, and we live with the scars and the mistakes of that. Uh, in in regional rural Australia. And we just said to Albanese, make it about constitutional recognition. Don't make it the voice. Don't conflate the two because we, we don't believe a representative body works for rural and remote Australia in particular, which is where the disadvantage is. And we have we have closed the gap in many parts of this country. We shouldn't we shouldn't think we need to do this just because we, we haven't closed a gap everywhere. Um, we have done a good job in some parts of the country. 
but in others we haven't, but it's in the rural and remote areas that haven't closed the gap, and that's where a representative body won't work. Uh, and unfortunately, you've got all these corporates uh, spending tens of millions of dollars. I'll have close to $100 million for yes case that they'll be spending. You'll be bombarded with ads of them, uh, which is all about the vibe. The ads are all about the vibe. I ask you to tell me what is the, in the, what is the content of those ads. The ads don't go to any detail because there aren't any details about the mechanics of this, apart from the fact that it's a representative body, the one we've had before. Albanese had every chance to, to table the legislation for the mechanics. Now, he, he, there's no way in the world he can sit there and say the parliament will decide. He will decide. He has a majority in the parliament. I mean, this is, this is nonsense for, for Albanese to say, oh, well, the parliament needs to decide this. There is no way in the world he does not have the details, the mechanics of how he wants this thing to operate because he is the government and therefore he should table that legislation so that not just politicians can see, but every Australian can see. But if he's not prepared to do that, He's not prepared to bring the Australian people into his trust. Then how can you trust Anthony Albanese? He he, he has has a model in his mind, but he's not prepared to tell you what it is. Uh, and he says, just trust me, let the Parliament work it out, and then hope that the the, the high high court actually interprets the intent of the referendum and what the Parliament does in the right way. Uh, and if they don't, then you're stuck with it. So bad luck. And this is where um, it is risky. It's unknown. Uh, and it is permanent. And unfortunately, Anthony Albanese was told this, just stick to to recognition, but he wouldn't. Uh, yeah. And unfortunately, he divided the country and all that, all that he's managed to do in, in 16 months of government is divide the country and drive up your cost of living. I don't know whether or not he will win. I don't know whether or not he loses, but just say he loses. Is his job untenable after that? Well, I think it's the beginning of the end, to be honest with you. I mean... Uh, he's lost no matter whether it sneaks across the line or, or whether it goes down. He's divided the country. Unless this was a 60, 60 plus percent win for the yes, Anthony Albanese's lost. Uh, and the fact that all he's done is divide the country, I think uh, there will be the beginning of the end of Anthony Albanese. There'll be people uh, like Bill Shorten that'll start to to start to, to cause trouble. And I, I suspect what you'll see is uh, it'll be uh, a lot of uncertainty in Canberra with with Labor, and there'll be a lot of backstabbing, a lot of going, a lot lot of uh, shenanigans going on because Albanese invested his leadership in this. And if you lose, and you lose, or you you can't win it uh, decisively, then there's a lot of trouble for you. It's interesting, you know, and you talk like this, and I agree with you. I think that they are in real trouble as a government, the cost of living and everything you talked about. Can I just touch on, and I know you're busy on a Monday, the renewables issue, and I've been very, very clear on this, that I actually think there's a place for solar. I actually think there's a place for it, but in the right locations, under the right circumstances. Um, now, Robbie Catt is going to hold a, a nuclear power convention um, later this week. Um, which everybody shot down and laughed, but Matt Canavan's been a supporter of it in the past, and so is Barnaby, if I'm really honest with you. Um, the renewable issue around where they are ruling to their own. I mean, we've got an instance at the moment where there's solar farms getting a solar, 4,000 hectares of solar has been put up 70 kilometres from the Great Barrier Reef. I mean, can't we seriously get some sort of legislation that, that actually puts it in the right place they're under uh, under some sort of rules, not just a. If you put it up, you, you, you're clean to go. You can clear whatever you want. You can do whatever you want, but we, we're going to support it. It is just laughable at the moment. Yeah, mate. Look, and in, in, in fact, when I first became the nationals leader, I asked Anthony Albanese for a national energy summit so that we could plan this properly. We could get uh, the the mix right, and, and the nationals have believed for over a decade that we should be uh, exploring nuclear energy. The reason we didn't do it when we governed last time is Liberals couldn't get there. Peter Dutton had the courage to, to agree with us, the Nats, and say, yep, I'm prepared to talk about nuclear and go down that pathway. Uh, so it just makes sense. It's zero emissions, and you can plug that in uh, and build them where existing coal-fired power stations are so you don't need new transmission lines. So it's not just about all the new solar panels and wind turbines. It's actually about having to plug them in, and there's 28,000 kilometres of new transmission lines that are required with it. So we've said there's a place for renewables as well. I believe solar in particular should be where the concentration of power is required, which is where the concentration of population is, which is on people's rooftops in capital cities. 
uh, and if you if you plug it in and you actually put it there, then you don't need to tear down prime agricultural land or or remnant vegetation and achieving it. So there is places for renewables, but they're losing their social license because of the poor planning that's going on. Yep. So we, we've said for a long time, let's pause, let's plan. Uh, we've asked Albanese for Energy Summit. He won't do it because Chris Bowen believes that on this reckless race to 82% renewables by 2030, yes. which is which is just mind-boggling. And to put this in perspective, that is, that is connecting 22,000 solar panels a day. 40 wind turbines a month now between now and 2030. You can, you, there's not even the supply chain to actually achieve that. They can't They can't make enough panels. They can't make enough turbines for us to do that. But Chris Bowen continues to go down that path. And what he's doing is he's tearing away investment confidence, not just in coal, but in gas, because you need firming energy. And this is where we're just saying you've got it wrong. You can still live up to international commitments, but Labor's net zero. They've effectively bought it from 2050 to 2030. We've got a long time, and we should invest in the new technology that continues to protect jobs. And you can still keep coal-fired power stations going under a coalition. It's called carbon capture storage and same with gas. And that's what we've said. Biden's investing $1.2 billion in carbon capture storage to reduce emissions but keeping traditional industries alive. Why wouldn't we? Yeah, this is where this is just madness. You don't need you don't need to to think that net zero is a nasty thing. We've got better chance than anyone to do it. We just have to use the technology that's available, which is carbon capture storage, a little bit of renewables, as well as nuclear, and meaning that we don't need to put in the new transmission lines. Says nearly a hundred billion dollars, and that is common sense. But unfortunately, Albanese and Bowen have left that at the door, and they're just going down this reckless path of a green utopia of renewables that, in fact, um, are going to cost you more, will be less reliable. And, in fact, I just we've also got an inquiry at the moment into renewables and, and and how they could operate because I've also got a big issue about what happens at end of life. And I'm yeah. really concerned about farmers getting left with this. They all go, oh, I've got a tight contract, but, but it's who the contract with at the end. Where, in 20 years' yeah, time, what happens? It, it, yeah. it, it may not be an AGL, it may not be an Asiania at the end of it. It'll be a shelf company that has no assets. And in fact, you're left uh, with these big turbines. You have to decommission. At the moment, they're about, uh, I think, one or the other day, I was told AGL had to decommission one near a Cooper's Gap. It cost them $750,000. So you've got, you've got 10 of those sitting on your property. Good luck in trying to decommission those if the company that you've got a contract with isn't worth two bob. Yeah, unbelievable. Uh, Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks so much for being with us, mate. Thanks for having me. Good on you, David Littleproud. We'll take a break, come back. This is Monday morning, the 18th of September, across rural Queensland today. You're with Ben Dobbin on the Resonate Broadcast Network. Welcome back to Rural Queensland Today, 18th of September on Rural Queensland Today across the Resonate Broadcast Network. Xenaron felt not far away. Uh, the QRL CEO is Ben Iken, a friend of mine. He joins us this morning on Rural Queensland Today. Ike, good morning and thanks so much for being with us. G'day, Dobbo. Good morning. Yeah, great to have you on board. Um, two really significant passings in the last week. Um, the Toowoomba legend, John Crackers McDonald, who was just an integral part of the fabric of the QRL and Rugby League. And also, yesterday we were saddened to hear the passing of Lionel Morgan, the first Indigenous Australian uh, Rugby League player to play for Australia. He was a Queenslander. Two very significant people uh, gone from the game. Yeah. um, Look, Rugby League is better. I think Australia is better for John Cracker McDonald and Lionel Morgan. Uh, Lionel Morgan, you know, when you read back through his history, uh, former Wynnum... Manly Seagull and some of the things that he had to face during his time in the game, um, the, the overt racism, um, but he rose above that and uh, showed his class on and off the field. Uh, he was the winger in the Indigenous uh, team of the century in rugby league uh, and you know left an indelible mark on the game. I kind of spoke to many people yesterday that knew about him, some of whom had seen him play and just said he was unbelievable. So uh, there was a few sad people around the game yesterday and, of course, that came off the back, as you rightly pointed out, of the passing of John Cracker McDonald, former chair of the QRL, former chair of the ARL, 
the first ever State of Origin coach. Uh, he was in charge when Artie Bootson ran out the Mighty Maroons in 1980, which started something special, as we know. And prior to that, he represented his state and his country as a player. Um, so, yeah, big hole this week in the hearts of many rugby league people. Um, but as I said earlier, uh, rugby league is in a better place because of John Cracken McDonald and Lionel Morgan. Yeah, you're certainly right. Yesterday, the hoodoo was broken. Um, the Brisbane Tigers, formerly the East Tigers, uh, beat Burley Bears in the Host Plus Cup final. Um, it was out at KO Stadium at Redcliffe, a huge crowd and... It just goes to show that grassroots football um, in the Host Plus Cup and this state league competition is alive and well. It was a, a very, very special day for everybody involved, especially uh, the East Tigers and the Brisbane Tigers supporters. Yeah, well, I think they'd been in five grand finals up to yesterday. They'd lost all five. <laughs> wow. uh, there was a soft spot, I think, for everyone for the Tigers who turned up yesterday who weren't the rabid. Billy Bears fans. I mean, I won't lie. I'm a Gold Coast boy, but I'm a former Chugan Seahawk. We hate the Burley Bears. So I was cheering for the Brisbane Tigers. I took great delight in uh, sharing that with the uh, the Billy Bears CEO, Damien Driscoll. Uh, and uh, after the game yesterday, like so it, it went down to the wire. Uh, literally the final set. Um, the East Tigers leading 22-18 were defending their try line. Uh, the last play of the game was a cross kick and two players out on the flanks, Ken Mamalo for the Bears and George Jennings for the Tigers both competed with for it. Uh, George Jennings come down with the ball. I was standing behind the dead ball line, I reckon five metres away from that contest. And when Jennings come down with it, so the Tigers player catches it, grounds the ball, the elation uh, from the Tigers supporters, but the players, um, there were grown men crying. It was incredible. Yeah, and, yeah that, so. and that's what it's about, isn't it, Ike? Really, to be honest with you, that's what the the, the Queensland State League competition that, that the QRL govern is about. You know, people have been rusted on supporters um, yeah. who have always had a team. Um, they remember it before the NRL became bigger than what it was um, and now encompasses four teams here in Queensland. It, it is very much the fabric of rugby league in this state. Yeah, so what, what you're combining, Dobbo, is uh, a lot of history that was there uh, before the NRL came along with this world-class development pathway. It's just a beautiful mix. And that's why we so violently oppose the introduction of national reserve grades. Because reserve grade is soulless. It's a, it's a thing that's tacked onto the uh, back end of the elite version of the game in organisations, you know, that uh, already get enough money. Whereas you, you go yesterday and you see the thousands of fans that turn up to support grassroots clubs like the Bears and the Tigers. And it's this perfect connection between elite rugby league and community football. Um, th- these teams, they, they strengthen the communities they represent. They, they take rugby league into areas that the NRL can't reach and in different ways. So for me, we will continue to stand for the Host Plus Cup, the BMD Premiership as the first choice development pathway for rugby league in Queensland. And yesterday was just another example of what we're fighting for. Yeah, you're dead right. Can we talk about, Ben, an an issue that's starting to crop up across the state? And I understand that it's a concern for the QRL. I understand that you guys are working working on it daily. Is the, I suppose, crowd um, behaviour around rugby league, and it's starting at junior level and it's going all the way up to senior level, and it doesn't matter, it's it's not exclusive to one area, it's happening across the state. How do you... Um, manage that position. I mean, the QRL have been very brave in a lot of areas. Um, You've put some absolute guidelines in around alcohol consumption at junior football, which has been wonderful. Um, You've made some significant bans throughout the last 12 months and fines to try and get people on the same page. But it's an ever-growing problem. It's just not aligned with rugby league. It's also a society issue, but one that obviously you're looking at closely and concerned about. Yeah, we are. I mean, it, it was starting to 
find its way into the game and having to be policed formally before I arrived into the role. Uh, the last CEO, Rowan Sawyer, introduced a positive uh, environment program um, set of guidelines, uh, which was a whole list of incidents and behaviours that uh, had sanctions attached to them. Um, you can go to a game, do the QR code thing and make a, an anonymous report uh, around uh, patron behaviour effectively because it's not just a rugby league issue, Dobbo. It's happening across the state and it's happening in all codes. In fact, I was part of a Queensland Government Roundtable where we're, all the major sporting codes got together uh, with the Department of Tourism in innovation and sport and it was like a counselling session. Everybody was kind of had these examples of some of the things that have been happening in their own sports and so the only way to deal with it is to be clear on what you don't want and anybody who uh, falls out of line come down hard on them and you know we've issued multiple life bans this year for people who have been caught misbehaving doing things that we do not want in the game and you just have to take a tough line. Look I, I don't know if this has always been the case, I can't say for certain that the things that are happening this year haven't always been happening, but it just seems to be a bit more regular and a bit more extreme. And part of the questioning around um, uh, the other sports was the million-dollar question why and, and sort of people have their own theories. Is it sort of a post-COVID thing? Is there more stress and anxiety? Are people feeling pressure? The cost of living? And, of course, if that's the case, by the time you arrive at a sporting um, venue, you know, and you're involved in a watching a contest of some sort, it's it's an emotive experience, and sometimes that's when it spills over. It's not where it should spill over, but that's where it happens. And as I said earlier, all we can do is create a very clear list of guidelines, and when people breach those guidelines is make sure that they get sanctions appropriately. Is it difficult, Ben, and... Um when you look at issues that go on in the metropolitan areas, um, to make one blanket rule, considering there might be a, a rugby, to let's just use the Adrian Vowles Cup at Charleville. I mean, there's never been an incident there, but, you know, they're bushies coming together um, and bush families coming together and norm history would show there hasn't been an incident. But there might be an incident, so let, let's just say, I'll say at Ipswich, you know, where I'm from. Is it difficult to make one blanket rule or is that the only way you can do it? Oh, look, even inside the metro areas, it, it becomes hard because, you know, in some cases you'd like to come down harder but you don't have the evidence. Um, in other cases, you know, you'll have someone who thinks they're doing the right thing, you know, entering the field of play to break up a fight. But, of course, the rules state that you cannot enter the field of play. And so you'll end up with a, a good person who's believing they're doing the right thing. You ends up having four, five, six weeks on the sideline um, for breaching that rule. Um, so you are right. It's, it's difficult. And, you know, look, here's the thing. If the behaviour uh, didn't exist in the first place, then we wouldn't have to hand out sanctions. Um, so, you know, governing bodies, no one cheers for a governing body. You know, but we do have to have a set of rules. We're not going to get it right all the time. We have to expect that our patrons aren't going to get it right all the time. And in some instances, the other thing that I've learned through my time in elite sport and is true for um, community sport as well, sometimes really good people do really stupid things. They're yeah. called mistakes. Um, but when you make the mistake, you know, to be as fair and reasonable as you possibly can, uh, you have to come down and enforce the rule and send a message because ultimately kids sport is about the kids yeah. and the two things we want out of the environment that our kids step into in rugby league and I'm sure this is the case for all sports is it is fun and it is safe I'll say it again it is fun and it's safe because they're having a good time and they feel safe in the environment guess what they're coming back and they're probably bringing their mate with them. Yeah, I agree. Ike, just quickly, um, and, it, and it might be something that's out of my, um, you know, knowledge, but Paul, the Paul Bowman Cup, um, the, the, I, I got messages about, you know, the five million into the Wit Sundays it puts in the economy. The second largest tournament in Australia for kids rugby league and people are upset. Can you give us some background on that, Rick? 
you know, are you able to, as the boss of that, what's going on up there? Because they've had three resignations from the committee. Um, my understanding was it was all the QRL said is that you can't drink grog at the tournament, which <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, look, that, look, that would be yeah, a very I, I, normal I, I, thing. That would be a very normal thing to say, hey, guys, it's a rugby league tournament for kids. You're not going drinking alcohol. Yeah, look, I won't go into the details. I don't think that's appropriate. But, like, for all junior carnivals, there'll be a set of rules that um, the organisers have to follow. Um, they get communicated to the committees. You know, sometimes uh, the uh, rules don't fit in with how people see the uh, carnivals should operate. Uh, and it changes from committee to committee. But that's our job to put our stake in the ground. And if committee members don't agree with, such things, then they, they're they within their rights to walk away from it, and that's fine. So I guess on the Paul Bowman Cup, all I'll say is that it's a, it's a magnificent little carnival for under nine kids, and the QRL will be putting the rules in place to ensure, as I said before, that when those kids come together, the experience they have is fun and safe. Yeah, awesome. Well said. Great to chat. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Good on you, Dobbo. We'll take a break. Come back. This is Rural Queensland today. Welcome back to Rural Queensland today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. Well, the biggest bull sale in Australia is Brahman Week. It's the premier bull sale. It's the Grand Pooh Bar. And if you want to buy Brahman bulls and you want to buy the best quality Brahman bulls, you need to be in Rockhampton on October the 2nd through to the 4th. It's the mothership. And uh, the Australian Brahmins Breeders Association President, Reid Rattle, joins us this morning. He's chair of Rockhampton Brahman Week sale and the committee, and he joins us this morning. Ray, good morning. Thanks so much for being with us, mate. Morning, Ben. Thanks for having me. Mate, um, it is, without a doubt, the premier sale, I believe, and it's the opportunity. I mean, you have bulls for all types, from the leading, leading studs all the way through to a commercial bloke who wants to put 30 bulls together. There's uh, an opportunity to do all of that and in between and encompassing what makes this sale so special? Uh, well, I think it's a bit of both of what you said there, Ben. Probably the numbers, um, for one thing. Uh, like you say, there's there's numbers of bulls there that, that for all buyers. Um, and I guess the other thing, probably more importantly, is that everyone sends their lead bulls to Brahman Week. So you've got, you've got big numbers of good bulls um, right from the the top shelf ones down to, like you say, people that might want to put 20 or 30 or 40 bulls together. Yeah, that, that's very true as well. Um, that you, that you, When you look at it and you go, well, people don't hold back bulls for another sale. This is where they actually, they actually put their bulls forward and the best bulls will turn up. Obviously, a huge number, 931 bulls uh, of grey and red bulls, including... You know, 531 polled and scurred bulls. It's come a long, long way, hasn't it, um, this breed? I mean, it's been the backbone and the pillar, without a doubt, of the Queensland and, and Northern Territory cattle herds. Without it, we're stuffed. It's just it, it's as clear as clear. And those bulls have evolved. They've become, you know, so much more user-friendly from originally, and they are an absolute must. In it. And you look at every herd. They've all got some a part of Brahman in them, and that's the thing that people don't realise, that they all originate from there. And they've just been so, so much so the backbone for Queensland and the Northern Territory that even now, in the situation where we're at with the way the season is, it's the Brahman bull that stands up. It's the Brahman bull that goes out and gets its cows, regardless. And that's probably something that you know shines through in in seasonal conditions like it is at the moment, more than any other time. Yeah, 100%, Ben. When when conditions get tough, that, that's when the Brahmins survive and thrive. So, you know, for, for the southern part of the, the country, I guess you're 100% right. Um, but, but, the, but the northern Australia is enjoying such a good season. You know, I think that bodes well for us too, you know, and, and with with our northern markets opening back up now, you know, I think that there's some, some positives there for the breed as well. Yeah, sure. Now, let's just give some, some – obviously there's some freight rebates on. Travelling over 500 kilometres, if you buy five bulls or more, 
you're travelling 500 kilometres and over, it's $50 a bull. Travelling outside Queensland, it's $100 a bull. And bulk buyers purchasing 10 bulls or more will be eligible for a $50 per bull. No distant requirement. Now, the agents, well, you've got elders, GDL um, at the moment, and and look, obviously that's important, and nutrient. So you're looking at this and going, right, okay, 205 of the biggest studs selling to their best bulls in excess of 900 bulls. You've got rebates. Now, outside rebates, 4% for agents outside 100 kilometres, um, 100 kilometres from Rockhampton, 2%. That's all there. And there's always, as usual, a gathering on the Sunday. So it kicks off on Monday morning um, at the selling complex at 8 a.m., the 2nd of October. So everybody will be celebrating a Broncos victory that day. Um, yeah. After they've won the night before, and then, but the night before, you're able to go, and everybody can have a bit of a gathering and watch the rugby league. It doesn't get any better than that, does it, Reed? No, absolutely right. We'll be there celebrating a Broncos victory, Ben. That's that'd be you know be the icing on the cake, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Uh, the Brahman Week annual sale. I can't speak highly enough about this sale, and I do it every year, and I, and I talk about it throughout the course of the year because I I just know how it's the pillar of the beef herd here in Queensland of the Northern Territory. 2nd, 3rd and 4th of October, CQLX Gracemere. It kicks off at 8am every single day. And, and on that Sunday the 1st, um, there is a gathering around 5 o'clock. You can go to brahman.com.au and it, it's a very, very special time of the year, Brahman Week. Appreciate your time, Reid. Um, no doubt anybody who, if, if, if there's any inquiries, the catalogs are there. They just need to go to brahman.com.au. You can download the catalogue. It's all there on a PDF and people moving forward can see all of that. Great, Ben. Thanks for having me. Good on you, mate. Reed Rattle, the President and Sale Committee Chair uh, of the Australian Brahman Breeders Association. We'll take a break, come back with more. This is Rural Queensland Today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. Welcome back to Rural Queensland Today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. Um, Zena Ronfeldt has been on this show before and she actually knows uh, a lot more about coal seam gas than the majority of landholders that have gas wells on their place or adjoining. She joins us this morning um, on Rural Queensland today and and not to, to paint a, a negative light, but just to give some hardcore facts about what has occurred in her pocket of land um, just short of outside of Dolby and the, the damage that has been caused by the coal seam gas industry um, around her agricultural property. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Ben. Well, I'm exhausted, absolutely exhausted by this whole process. I, 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 don't, I don't blame you. Now, I watched a YouTube video, which we will put up. We will put this YouTube video up on Rural Queensland Today's Facebook page. And Thanks, Ben. It, it, it is telling about what is going on with the coal seam gas industry and agricultural land. Just can you timeline us quickly um, about how this has occurred for you uh, and just give us some timeline on when you first um, had adjoining coal seam gas wells against your property and then where you've got to today and why the need for some regulation, the need for some absolute compensation and why this is damaging your agricultural farm. Well, I think that's about three days' conversation, Ben, but in a, in a three-minute rundown, if we can get it in yeah. there. Um, basically, what happened was an, a licence was granted or a permit was granted to Arrow Energy to put coal seam gas wells um, in our area in about 2005. They started drilling gas wells in about 2007. We, by about 2012, uh, 2013, they were within three kilometres, they just approached the back of our property and were at the back of our property by late 2014, early 2015 in terms of their actual production start because the company drilled a stack of wells and then they just sat there, you know, not producing any gas and not doing anything for many years. So fast forward to 2020 and we're minding our own business, farming our paddock just the way we always have done, which is uh, through no-till because uh, that's the, the yep. best way to manage the land here, yep. uh, get the best production. 
Um, and we started finding that just our tractor was getting bogged, like pretty basic. And then we put our hand up, started asking questions of government and gas going, well, look, hello, we have got something happening here. What's the process we need to follow now? What What's the compensation process? Um, hey, I think you scientists probably will be really interested to come and look at this because if this happens across the rest of this floodplain, this is just going to be an absolute disaster, not just for the farmers, but for towns like Dolby and oh, um, sure. Toowoomba. And uh, we found that um, we just literally got the a fob-off response from pretty much everyone. The government went through their standard process of sending their high-level people out to get a visit from minister and some high-level people because they think, oh, keep you happy because then you might shut up and not take it further. They found that didn't work because bearing in mind there was more than Gary and I in this conversation with government. They found that didn't work. So then they went through the next year or so of like, well, let's freeze these landholders out. We just won't respond to them. And that'll get rid of them. But what they forgot was the fact that we actually all, we, we farm here, like we live here. It's like, it's not that easy to sell your farm because you've got to... So is this the state government tax. or is this the state government or the federal government that tried to freeze you out? Oh, they're both in it up to their eyeballs. Right. So, you know, it's not that easy because you've got to pay heap of capital gains tax and if you move somewhere else, you've got to pay heap of stamp duty and then... Sure. You've got other properties in the area because sure. it's very closely settled. So it's not easy. And so we sort of arrived at the point of the day where I think the government got to this horrifying realisation for them that the subsidence is actually happening because the problem's been that we've had the Office of Groundwater Impact Assessment, which came out years ago and said, oh, no, subsidence is not going to be a problem. And, of course, now they're scrambling around because subsidence is a problem. So how do they retrofit the subsidence that's happening into their um, model and still come out looking like they've got any professional credibility? And, you know, that's where you, you know, we're really stuck. And I just want to make it clear, the problem with the gas here is because of the topography and the land use. And it's something that's particular to here. So there's big areas of Queensland where there's a lot of farmers and graziers that are very happy coexisting with gas wells. And that's fine but for them. But the problem here is it's turning our property, which is, well, we've got a few properties, but the one ones in that gas area, we've got 1,000 hectares there. And it's a combination of irrigated and dry land cropping and is literally terraforming it into grazing. And it's just mind blowing. So that can the I ask you this? Could, could I ask you this? And I and I mean this genuinely. It, 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 and I say this so for people that don't understand is your land is literally collapsing from underneath you. It's gaining moisture to the top. And I, I've seen this YouTube documentation and the satellite imagery from your property that when it rains, what it used to be, what was dry country that you could you're just bogging tractors now and there's moisture coming up through the ground it, it's it's almost impossible well, it's not that there's moisture coming up through the ground what's happening is is when they get the the um gas and out of the ground they have to pump all the water out that lets the gas out so the coal shrinks and there's the water's not holding the ground up anymore and and so it's like if you can visualise three stacks of books and each stack has got a different thickness of books in it and they're right next to each other and you pull one book out from each one, everything just goes down but unevenly because the books are all different thickness. And then the water that's got to throw, flow through our paddock to get to the creek, it's flowing into the side of our paddock and it's just getting stuck there. It just can no longer drain down the Murray-Darling Basin. It's that simple. So, okay, you're about solutions and, and trying to get to w w what works, them to stop, how do they fix it? And, and, and I don't understand, I, I don't understand how in any way you can be compensated for all this. That's, that's honest. Well, well, that's it. There's no actually no amount of money that can compensate for this because they're actually destroying the, the land and the land use. And that's actually the horrifying thing. So what we've done to try and manage it is that we dug some 
uh, channels in in 2020 in a temporary basis just so we could drain it and get a crop into it because our problem is is water flows across that paddock so we've got to keep it cropped um, with standing stubble in it so that it doesn't wash away you know when this water travels through the creek so we we did that and we found that they then those channels failed then over a year or so. So then we've dug some really deep channels in it, which are very destroying to your machinery and, pardon me, they slow down your land use. And, uh, you know, those are just temporary solutions. But our problem is, is that the subsidence keeps happening every year and it's it changes every year. So you're ending up with this broad area of subsidence and you've got patches within it that um, think more than others and they're not connected. So you're still ending up with this pooled water situation. And uh, so we've drained, drained the paddock as best we can, um, just temporarily, and uh, got a crop in it. But what we've found is our barley crop's got these horrendous patches. It shows up, you know, by satellite where the crop is just really not doing well and it's where the areas, all the the fertilizer's been leached out of the soil from the water sitting on it. The soil's effectively died because of the little bacteria and fungi that are in the soil that that, uh, keep it living and that make your crops healthy. Um, And the problem is that this subsidence, you know, some people say it's going to continue for 60 years, like that seems to be the the thing that they're trying to tell us, but then you, you delve into other reports and they say, oh, well, it's 100 years, and then some other reports say it's 700 years. So this is actually a monstrous problem because we've actually had, um, we've got 400 hectares of irrigation, uh, flood irrigation in that area. We don't have any groundwater extraction, um, and we've just, laser leveled one third of our irrigation area and we wouldn't have had to do that if this coal seam gas subsidence um, you know hadn't been occurring but the problem with doing that is that you're picking up your topsoil out of one area of your paddock you're putting it somewhere else so we've been spreading manure on our property and the previous owner had for like you know decades so it's pretty sure. pretty good condition and now we've now shifted that all around our paddock we've compacted it because we've had a tractor and a bucket you know soil driving around all over it for like a week or two smoothing it out we've not a, it's now like a mirror because it's been compacted down we've now got to somehow get that wet again get the nutrient back into the patches where we've shifted the nutrient away um, and you know, it's just and get that soil living again, and it's just going to affect. It's not only the enormous cost of the actual laser leveling and all the fuel you've got to use um, to do that. It's then getting it wet and then getting a crop growing in it because we've actually done small areas of leveling on other properties just for like flood remediation and. Um, so forth, and you can really see the impact on how healthy that crop is. Uh, I say on a rain-grown paddock, um, that will take four or five years for it actually to come fully back into production. Irrigation can be a little shorter if you've actually got enough water. But another story is our our irrigate one of our irrigation dams in the project area has started to to lose seep water through the base. It's losing a lot of water a lot more water than the other one. We've got a direct comparison because there's two there. We've got little tiny sinkholes starting to develop in our western paddock that you see in the photos, and they're just small. Um, They're 300 millimetres or so uh, deep and about 40 uh, centimetres across. Um, That one that we, we actually saw, which we have to walk over our whole paddock just to see whether there was more, it... um, it developed when the soil had a full profile of moisture because it was in one of these subsided areas or in the edge of it. And if one of those is under the under the water in our dam, well, no wonder the thing's leaking. But the thing is, is there isn't any science then no. to like work all these things out. They've done this project and they haven't had any science. And now they're trying to develop science to cover up the fact that there's a problem. And they just need to have this light bulb moment that, the ground is physically sinking. They can't cover it up with a desktop assessment. It is sinking. Yeah, so. it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Mm. I appreciate your time this morning. 
You're so passionate about this, and rightly so. Um, and we are here to support you. We will do everything we can. Thank you, Jenna. We really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks, Ben. Good on you. We'll take a break, come back with more. Jeez, it's a harrowing. And we're going to put that video up on our Facebook page today. Um, Thank which you. Which will just absolutely uh, open people's eyes. This is Rural Queensland today. Welcome back to Rural Queensland today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. Um, Life Flight Australia is such an important part of the fabric of rural and regional Queensland. And once again, the Roma Sayards are thrilled to announce that we'll be welcoming back um, Life Flight Australia as their beneficiary of its charity sale this September. The council has resolved to donate 50% of the live weight and open auction selling fees capped at 25000 received for each head of cattle at the Roma store sale and on the 26th of September. Now, they are world leaders, Life Flight, and um, I can tell you uh, it has been such a big part of the fabric and an essential role in providing emergency air rescue to the region. The council know that. Well, the mayor of the Maranoa Regional Council, is the one and only Tyson Golder, and he joins us this morning on Rural Queensland Today. Hello, mate. How are you? Yeah, good. How are you going, Ben? Well, mate, congratulations. Another, um, and look, it, I don't think it takes much to get um, this off the ground. It, it, you know, they, they are a 365-day-a-year service, 24-7, and they provide emergency medical care in your neck of the woods, which you need. And there's a lot said for that because the government doesn't do this. Life flight are that they are the the people who are providing the essential services. So to give back from the council and also from the sale yards and and the commissions is a very very big thing. Yeah, no, it certainly is. And uh, life flight, you know, with their chopper and so forth, they provide an amazing service. You know, the chopper's about approximately twenty million dollars. So it's an uh, amazing asset that we've got. And not just the Maranoa, but we're working on a plan to be able to get it to, uh, with our six councils in our region way out, out to Fargaminda and so forth. So basically, this chopper will be life-saving for all of the councils around us. And uh, they've just built a new base in Roma. And, um, you know, we want to keep this chopper here long term. Yeah, I mean, the... Life Flight Regional Advisory Committee Chair Kate Scott has obviously been an integral part, and I know Life Flight are so grateful around the council and the people of Maranoa for supporting this because without it, whether it's a mining, farming, you know, tourist, it, it, it doesn't discriminate. It's there and it's a service. And, and as you're saying, you want to see more than one chopper there and obviously it to be a part of and help the other regional councils so that there, there is a service there to help the men and women and children and, and families through all of this? Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, um, this this uh, service is here because of the gas at the moment, but long-term we want to make sure it's a service that looks after the whole of the West. And, um, you know, as it was said by one uh, family member that the best sound in the world is uh, when you've, you know, sadly had an accident, to hear that the chopper's coming, you know, the noise of the chopper. So um, they say that that chopper is exactly the same as, um, you know, high level in a hospital operating um, sort of um, emergency um, area and uh, that's that flies to where people are. So, you know, there's a bit of danger in the bush when we work and, you know, we're dealing with sort of variables and to have a... Uh, Rotary, you know, a chopper service is just a wonderful thing for the region and council wants to do everything we can to keep it. Yeah, I, I think this is just wonderful. So this takes place and and they welcome back on the 26th of September. So next week, which is huge, um, and all, all selling fees, open auction selling, capped at $25,000 and the council will also donate 50% of the live weight and open selling auction fees capped at $25,000, which is huge. Um, uh, and, and a massive, massive contribution. Mate, challenges in your neck of the woods at the moment. There's a lot, but how are you all travelling? Yeah, no, she's, um, well, we're definitely in the drought um, side of things and amazing what a year has done, but, you know, we know that the tap turns off. 
Um, but, you know, generally, um, you know, town's poking along all right. Um, it's going pretty well, actually. And um, But if we could get some more rain for people in the bush, that would be the best uh, present we could get. And we just have to wait and it, it'll come when it comes. So. Yeah, I um I think it's pretty amazing uh, what is taking place as well. Um, I think that you know what, what we need to get some rain. Um, people that you know, no one would have thought the cattle market would have come back like it is. Housing crisis, it, it's in a lot of areas. Have you got this housing shortage? Are you affected by this in the Maranoa? Yeah, no, we definitely are, and we're looking for some um, really to solve this, especially in rural and remote areas. We need some some no-interest money that councils are given to build some housing. You can still build housing, and it's it's gone up, but it's not ridiculous. But when you build it, you're not going to be able to sell it for, you know, more than what you – or the same as what you paid for it. So we, we need some way that we can provide good quality housing, improve the housing stock. That's probably where the – you know, the Housing Commission houses of, you know, 30 or 40, 50 years ago came from. was must have been schemes in the 70s, I'd imagine, to do that. And we need to do it again because the great thing is people are moving to the bush. Um, they're seeing the value of, um, you know, a tree change or country change. And we need to have the houses because they'll come also for our jobs, but we need to be able to have the houses. So I think... Um, Governments need to partner with local governments, especially in rural and remote areas. And then, you know, some councils are doing it themselves. We've got some land that we've earmarked um, to build housing on, but you you sort of can't afford to pay full rates to build the houses and pay them off over 20 years. So you know, there's sort of got to be a mix in there to support councils um, filling the gap with sustainable amounts of housing. I like it, uh, and it has to happen, and the government need to come forth. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Ben. Good on you, Tyson Golder. We'll take a break, come back. This is Rural Queensland Today, Monday morning, the 18th of September. You're with Ben Dobbin across Rural Queensland Today. Well, that's it from us here this morning at Rural Queensland Today on this Monday morning, the 18th of September. Wow, isn't the year flying? Hope you enjoyed the show. I certainly did. And we're back tomorrow morning from 9am. You can go to Spotify to download any of our previous episodes or today's episode. Go to our Facebook page. If you want to just get in contact with me, dobo at ruralqldtoday.com.au. You can get in contact with me anytime you like. Have a great day. Ray Hadley joins you next. And remember, when the wheat is ripe, keep the headers rolling in the paddock and stay safe on the roads. Till next time, from myself, Ben Dobbin, and the team here at Rural Queensland today across the Resonate Broadcast Network, Have a great Monday. We'll be back tomorrow morning from nine. Bye for now.